All right, how's it going, everyone? Welcome to another episode of Forward Thinking Founders, where we're talking to founders about their companies, their visions for the future, and how the two collide. Today, I'm very excited to be talking to Joseph Nelson, who's the co-founder of RoboFlow. Joseph, welcome to the show. How's it going? Thanks so much. Appreciate you having me. Yeah, I'm excited to, to have you on. I have tons of questions about what you're working on and just wait, kind of, I, I have tons of questions. So I'm, I'm looking forward to this. But to start, um, for people that don't know, just on a very high level before we dive into the technology, just what are you working on on RoboFlow for, on a high level? Yeah, RoboFlow is what we say the easiest way to get started with computer vision. Uh, and by computer vision, we mean the technology that powers everything from self-driving cars to early, early medical diagnoses to mobile deposit at banks. Uh, it's really helping computers see the world. And RoboFlow is the best way for um, any data scientist, developer, engineer to get started of incorporating computer vision into their applications. Okay, so let's start, let's start there with computer vision and, and you know, this technology. I feel like I have a light idea of what computer vision is, um, but you know, not not a super in-depth one. I'm, I feel like a lot of people listening may not know either. So, can you kind of go into what computer vision is and what you're able to build with it before we talk more about the applications of uh, of RoboFlow? Absolutely. Computer vision is at its core helping computers see as well as or better than how humans can see. So, for example, I mentioned earlier use cases within healthcare. Uh, you can envision that a computer vision use case of, say, diagnosing breast cancer would be software that helps doctors better diagnose breast cancer. So instead of just a doctor relying on his or her own expertise in terms of interpreting the results of a scan, computers often can pick up on patterns that things that we wouldn't even see, or even better, perhaps more unbiasedly, pick up patterns that we might otherwise not see. And so the technology that goes into making it so that a computer can effectively understand imagery in videos is at the core of what computer vision is. So a couple questions, definitely basic naive questions on my end, but just so I can get like a better understanding. So would you say that computer vision is the ability to translate what is out in the world um, and what, you know, what can be captured into a format that a computer can like do something with. Um, what I mean by that is like, uh, let's say self-driving tractors. I had someone on my, on my podcast on uh, the self-driving tractors, which is random as hell, but it's a pretty great business according to him. Is he fun fact, fun fact about that. The first self-driving tractor was in 1997. So we've had self-driving tractors long before self-driving cars were even a part of the dialogue. Um, and that's something that, uh, Basically, I'm from Iowa. Every island is required to know uh, on some level. That's awesome. Well, let's actually, I'm curious, let's start there. Was there, I mean, did, did the tractors that were self-driving back then, did those use computer vision or what type of technologies would you say use computer vision? Yeah, you know, actually, this is a really good way to describe how computer vision has changed the way that computers interact with the real world and the way that we interact with computers. So that first tractor in 1997 that John Deere piloted of being a self-driving tractor was actually GPS guided. And if you think about it, a tractor in a field has a much simpler task than self-driving cars. Uh, the very first one simply just had to drive straight lines and the tractor had to be GPS guided. And in other words, there's zero vision incorporated into that problem. 
It's just lat long, make sure you make a straight line. Over time, however, uh, when we began to be able to have computers process images more effectively, at first it just meant that we could take a, an image and represent it um, as, as data, right? So each image is made up of small pixels. And you could think of, I don't know, if you took a piece of paper and you drew an eight by eight grid and you filled in some of those grid tiles to make like a smiley face, that would be like a really, really low representation of a way that an, a computer sees um, images. Now, originally, the way that we taught computers to recognize things as images is we had to say, look at these uh, individual pixels uh, one by one. Uh, but over time, what's happened is our computing power has gotten far better and cheaper. The amount of data that we have to learn from has increased exponentially. And the models and methods we use to understand those indivi individual pixels has progressed uh, to ways that we wouldn't have even thought were possible five years ago. And that means that instead of seeing things as individual pixels, computers can now kind of make sense of like grouping of items or grouping of, of what's actually in an image. I mean, the famous example is Google training a computer to recognize cats and dogs on the internet. Instead of us needing to tell a computer, hey, these pixels here are what define cat ears, the computer over time learned which pixels denoted that something was more like a cat versus something else. And so, I mean, one thing we should call out is computer vision is a subset of machine learning, which is a subset of, of artificial intelligence. And all these buzzwords get thrown around a lot. But ultimately, what we're talking about is instead of us, that is humans, needing to tell a computer, these are the rules, this is what defines a cat. Look for pointy ears, look for whiskers, look for a specific small nose like this. Instead, machine learning flips that on its head and says, here's a bunch of images that are cats. Now you learn the rules. You learn what defines a cat from a dog. You learn what the edges of a road looks like. And that, that power of us not needing to declare the explicit rules of what defines uh, what an object looks like, uh, what cancer looks like, um, what even, I don't know, board games look like, you name it is a, a, frankly, a way of re-envisioning how we can create applications that understand the world around us. So this continuing to run with this mammogram example, instead of us needing to very specifically say, these, you know, this region here, this darkened region here, corresponds to early indications of something that you might want to have preventative treatment. A machine will learn patterns that we often or didn't even know to look for. And in doing so, um, we've produced systems that are, that are smarter and better at helping us. Now, what's funny about computer vision is that it's this transformative technology that is increasing uh, demonstrably, something like 30% year over year, the market uh, sizing estimates go up. But right now, it feels like it's kind of locked up with top companies or household names that you might think of. Um, and for a technology that's so transformative, it's important for that to be as accessible as possible for anyone to get started with. And so uh, that's kind of the motivation for where RoboFlow comes from is, you know, we've been talking about medical, medical examples to date, but frankly, any uh, example where you want to interact with a computer or frankly, you want to interact with the real world is a place where computer vision can enhance and transform that experience. And so, uh, we're really focused on ushering in that transition to happen much more quickly.
that's a great kind of description of computer vision and it helps me a lot. I have a couple more questions along those lines to draw some parallels and then I want to dive deeper into the product. So as you can see here on the video, I got an Oculus Quest in front of me. I got the Oculus Quest like a week ago and this thing is fantastic. And I think I've literally mentioned it on every podcast for the last week because I'm so excited about it. But on the Oculus Quest, you can see here, there are four cameras which enable like pretty much inside out tracking, which lets like, the, which kind of lets it like interact with the world. My gut, which that means nothing because like, I don't know anything about computer vision, but my gut is wondering like, is, is the Oculus Quest using computer vision? And if it is, in, in what ways, I guess, is it? And if not, what would you say is technology powering like the Quest or VR? Um, I'm just kind of curious to like apply it to something that like I think a lot about now, which is like virtual reality. Yeah, yeah. You know, what's interesting about your example is the Quest's core value is the virtual reality of immersing you in a different experience where the video and the feed and you feeling like you're transformed into a new world is really its core value. However, what we can do now is make that virtual reality experience influenced by your real world experience around you. So in other words, instead of like sitting in a movie theater where you're passively enjoying some sort of maybe different experience and a different scenery, uh, the Oculus, as you described with those four cameras, can take into consideration the environment around you. And uh, now I don't know the specifics of how Oculus Quest works. I can say with confidence, however, that it certainly needs to have an awareness of your surroundings and the, the room and the space around you. And so that's what those four cameras are doing is, I'm sure they're doing things like sensing distance to nearest object, or uh, maybe over time, their uh, Oculus and, and Facebook more broadly can release uh, maybe smart tools or even dumb tools that allow you to interact with your environment with your Oculus. I mean, that's already what some of the sort of dumbbells that you can host and use are for, I've seen a number of fun games that people play in, in VR. But broadly speaking, the difference between having a goggles in front of you um, that sort of like almost you can pretend like display a movie or goggles in front of you that change the way you interact with the world on the other side is, is kind of a difference. Uh, which actually, I mean, a related cousin to, to, to virtual reality um, being augmented reality. So instead of immersing you in a completely different experience, taking a, the environment in which you are currently existing and improving it, making it look a little bit different. I mean, you hear about things like, for example, like smart contacts, where if you have your contacts in, you, uh, you look up and you can see the weather or you're maybe at a, a, a sports game and uh, you, you have the uh, maybe smart contacts or smart glasses, you name it, and you can see the first down line in, in person. And you can see little circles around the players that are expected to be the ones that, let's say it's football, that are most likely to uh, receive the next pass or be a target for the next pass at a minimum. Um, things like that um, are uh, you know, not that far off um, and kind of actually what got us uh, me and my co-founder Brad excited about the computer vision space broadly is that we can now change and create applications that interact with our environment intelligently. I mean, think about it like this. For a long time, we made objects around us smart by uh, embedding computers in those objects themselves. Maybe a good example is Nest thermostats. The thermostats by Google that understand your home and will adjust temperatures, detect movement, and uh, regulate temperature accordingly. The way that we took a dumb thermostat and we made it smart is we took a thermostat and we uh, put a computer into it for it to understand the world. Now, I think that the next wave of kind of smart devices generally 
is that instead of putting computers inside of objects around us, uh, we can add a software layer to real world objects. Now that sounds really abstract and strange, but kind of what I mean is, I mean, you could think about uh, maybe a pharmacist whose job is to stock pills accordingly or to make diagnoses or to um, maybe when they're conducting chemistry in the lab, you kind of name it. Maybe they're wearing glasses or whatever medium they're using to interact with the environment around them isn't really my point. My point is more when they reach for a specific pill or they reach for a specific chemical. Uh, that chemical by itself, of course, doesn't have a computer in it, but you can envision a software layer that's like, yes, mix in this fashion or stock these specific pills or be sure that this prescription gets filled in this specific way. And those types of, of applications um, rely on two kind of buzzy technologies, computer vision and augmented reality. But at their core, what we're saying is allowing software to take context into account in the world around us. And then how, in this case, having augmented reality be the interface by which we interact with that context. Um, and so uh, the way that relates to, to RoboFlow is we got our start at building end-to-end augmented reality applications felt a lot of the pain points that felt like a million paper cuts that kept us from deploying these augmented reality applications faster and predominantly on the computer vision side that is helping our software understand objects around us. And so we began to make developer tools that would help others launch applications, computer vision applications uh, more quickly. So broadly speaking, uh, your question about virtual reality um, Yes, there's, there's certainly computer vision involved, but the broader computer vision excitement for interacting with objects around you, I don't think needs to be a new virtual experience. And I think that the software layer between us and any object in the world will be 10 times as big as the personal computer layer. Because if every object could be a computer, you can envision the limitless capabilities and excitement and, and possibilities that uh, we can have in our day-to-day -day interactions. And you, you get me excited about this future and, you know, RoboFlow is kind of, is kind of powering it, right? You're, you're kind of on your way. I'd love to hear, um, as someone who's obviously like not super technical, how, how does someone use RoboFlow to build products with computer vision? If, you know, the dummies version, I guess, how does it work? No, no, no dummy, no dummy version at all. I mean, um, so we talked a lot about like, what computer vision is, why computer vision. Uh, we didn't talk a whole lot about how. So let me describe that a little bit. So the how of computer vision, recall that the big difference is instead of us telling a computer the rules and it taking an input and producing an output, we're giving a computer the output and having it learn the rules. Now, in doing so, you have to give a computer an image and you have to tell it what you want it to learn about that given image. So for example, um, Let's pretend that you are building an application. Uh, actually, this is an application that, that we built, so it's a very rural, real example. Um, and you're building an application that is going to understand the state of a board in a chess game, okay? And so um, in doing so, if you take a photo of a board or you're taking a live video feed of a board, you want a, an app that's gonna suggest maybe the next best move for you, and also one that's gonna record all the moves you made in that given chess game. Well, that relies on the app understanding the state of the chess board and knowing what a given piece is and knowing where on the piece that board is. If we want to build this application, we need to teach our computer, let's start with a really maybe problem number one, which is what does one chess piece look like versus another chess piece? And 
the way that we um, teach a computer uh, to do that uh, pretty simplistically is initially you have to provide a bunch of examples of, hey, you know what, this part of the image, this little segment here is where the pawn is. This little segment here is where the king is. This little segment here is where the rook is, so on and so forth. And by providing um, a machine learning model with a series of examples, that is to be using terms of art, we have our images and we have our annotations, uh, which are the labels. And so you have an image of a bunch of chessboards and you have a bunch of annotations that correspond to that given chessboard. Um, you're telling the computer, this part of the image contains a king, this part contains a pawn, this part contains a rook. So that in the future, if a user is using your application, they can show the computer the same model that you've embedded in your application, a, an example of a chessboard that hasn't yet been told what piece is what, and the model from what it learned from all your examples will output and say, hey, there's a king here, there's a pawn here, there's a rook here. Um, so what's interesting about this, this example is, now uh, let's put this into a more real world context. You're building this, this app for users to be able to record their chess games and receive uh, feedback on maybe their best moves and a list of all the moves that they had in that given game. Well, your users are gonna be, for example, uh, in different lighting settings. They are going to be at different angles relative to the board, right? Like if I'm directly behind my pieces versus you can imagine watching from the side of the game, maybe I'm directly above over top of the board is where I'm taking the photo from. Um, there's different actual chess pieces themselves. Uh, there's different boards, the boards look differently. Now these types of problems uh, are pretty easy for humans. We, can, we are generalized learners. We can, you can tell, show me one chessboard and I can pretty easily figure out what another chessboard's pieces are. Machines on the other hand require these examples uh, and require being shown, you know, does a king that's in a dark room look different than a king that's in a light room? Um, if I have a board that's rotated differently, do I, uh, do I know that the king looks the same from every different angle over top versus beside, et cetera? And so you're confronted with a number of problems that, that I just described. So one problem is you have to collect, <laughs> collect images of chessboards. You have to label those, those chessboards. And by label, I mean say, hey, inside this box, there is a pawn. Inside this box, there's a king. Once you have your images and your labels, you need to, frankly, just store them somewhere and share them with your team so that everyone is working with the same data set and it's easily shareable. Um, and you could use, you know, maybe a Dropbox or a Google Drive for this, but that's an imperfect solution because every image also has this annotation. Annotation formats come in a variety of different formats, which is a frustrating point for, for data scientists. Then once you have your images and annotations and your data set for your team, you have to accommodate for the different lighting conditions, the different rotations that you could see that your model might be might experience out in the wild. And so you have to write Maybe you could, you could do two things at, this, at that juncture. You could either be like, okay, let me go simulate. Like, let me go into my room and turn up the lights, turn down the lights. Let me get, you know, a thousand more images from beside the board, from above the board. Or you could simulate what those conditions look like with the images you've already collected. Um, so once you've done a series of those things, you then have your images and annotations ready to uh, train a model with. RoboFlow exists for everything up until you are training your model. So basically, I have my images ready, I have my annotations ready, I have a consistent data set, my images and annotations are in the right format, they're labeled correctly, every label is 
inside frame. Like I don't have a nonsensical label that is outside of the image itself. Um, I can simulate almost like you can envision uh, adding Instagram filters, if you will, to my images of increasing brightness, decreasing brightness. I can rotate my images. I can what's called shear them, which kind of makes them look like parallelograms. I could do grayscale if I think that grayscale is going to improve my model performance, whether it be more timely or not. Um, and through a series of these different kind of Instagram filters, which uh, the term of art there is uh, augmentation. If I use these series of augmentations, then my model is going to generalize better. So RoboFlow takes care of all of that. You can much more, you have your images, you have your labels. We version everything. We have one click pre-processing. We have one click augmentation, one click export to any format uh, by default. And so uh, that's sort of the, the, the very first part of, of where we're digging into this big broad vision of enabling computer vision models is these, frankly, like I said, annoying paper cuts that inhibit faster development. I have to ask, you not only understand it, but you are able to explain it in a very easy to understand way, which means you really understand this stuff. You really get, you know, this realm. How did you, how'd you learn, uh, how'd you learn how to develop, you know, like computer vision and, you know, just learn to code in general, where'd you get the skill set? Yeah. You know, um, I didn't have formal education in, in, uh, computer science. Um, the, I studied economics in school. Uh, I took a number of stat classes. Um, I took two formal computer science classes, but frankly, I mean, the way that I picked a lot of this stuff up is the way that you see a lot of people picking these skills up, which is a lot of self-taught. Maybe they took jobs at places that taught them practices, which I was fortunate to work at a large tech company, work at small tech companies. Um, and then also just a lot of projects along the way. Um, and so, I mean, Basically, I was in school and I found economics to be an interesting way to kind of describe the world. It's like economics is a degree in problem solving of taking a system, oversimplifying that system and then optimizing that oversimplified system. So like supply and demand, clearly an oversimplification of, of the way the world works, but also kind of a useful heuristic. If we increase, I don't know, this is maybe controversial in, for our listeners in San Francisco, but if we increase the number of housing units, the rental prices should go down, right? And like, that's not uniformly true. There's caveats, how much will they go down? But generally, it's, it's a useful understanding of the world. Well, once we have that model of the world, uh, the question becomes, well, if we increase housing by 1,000 units, how much will price go down? So we need to build a mathematical approximation. Uh, I found a fascination with that and that work in econometrics. So I went deeper down the rabbit hole and I started using programs like Stata and SPSS to like model these situations. And I found them to be really inflexible and frustrating. So then I kind of picked up Python and found that to be a good place to, to go deeper. Um, and, you know, formally, uh, I worked for a bit at Facebook. I, um, you know, at one point took a, a part-time GA class. And then after a couple of years, I actually came back and taught at General Assembly for uh, about a year and a half, uh, which equated to basically 2,000 hours in the classroom. So I suppose that that is a, um, a reason for being excited to explain these concepts. But generally speaking, if one thing that I really would want to impose into our listeners, it's that a formal degree in these things is not required to make a meaningful impact with them. Um, surely, I mean, there's, I'm learning more about computer vision literally every day. I'm looking at um, research papers. I'm understanding how other people have accomplished problems. Um, but I'm equally saying I don't know a lot. 
um, we're understanding our users. Uh, so it's like, it's funny, you, you, you feel confident and in, in you know what you want to, to solve your problem. But the truth is that, and the joke I always make is people are like, oh, how do you, how did you learn this? And the answer is I'm still learning. And so, um, yeah, the, the roundabout answer is I found a, an excitement in uh, describing systems with, with math, computing, and programming, and that created a natural excitement for it. But there was no moment where overnight I was suddenly a data scientist, if you will. Um, having credibility of large institutions uh, pay you to do that work helps, but ultimately anyone that wants to get started can. One question I have that's a little bit off the uh, off agenda, but something I'm curious about is um, you mentioned. Uh, tell me if I get this wrong, but you said you grew, you grew up in Iowa. That's right. Cool. So you grew up in Iowa, but you just mentioned that you um, that you worked for Facebook for for a bit, and then uh, you taught at General Assembly, which. I feel like that that stuff is not as present in Iowa as it is in San Francisco or New York or, you know, like uh, Toronto. How, do you mind sharing how do you just break into tech, not the skills, but the access? You, you, how do you get the access to get into some of these places? Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, speaking really specifically, geographically, I'm located in D.C. and I've been here for the um, better part of seven years. Uh, my co-founder, Brad, is is in Iowa and we split time between the two. Like I'll be, now I'm in Iowa for at least really a week and a half, usually two weeks out of the month, Brad comes to DC. Um, so the geographic thing of just being in DC presented a lot more opportunities. Um, a second thing about access is, I think I'm really fortunate that um, being, looking the way I am and coming from where I've come from has probably, has certainly granted me opportunities that are not equally accessible for um, everyone for the same, merit-based reasons that they should be. So that's another thing that I'm fortunate about. The third thing I think is um, a, there's, there's realizing that the world's more accessible and kind of malleable uh, than we may anticipate and being willing to, to cold email or being willing to um, find mentors, ask for that introduction, put things out there. I mean, <laughs> if we ask our listeners, like, remember the last time maybe on Twitter that you saw like, uh, like uh, a piece of software that like you didn't like or something? Uh, the answer is you probably don't. Like you remember the ones that you really, really like and just putting things out there is, is a good way to, to, to get going. Um, so, I mean, it's a combination of being fortunate to have been right place, right time, being fortunate to um, be in a privileged position and being fortunate that I had mentors and those along the way. Um, and for the same reason, I try to pay those things forward. Got it. That, uh, that all makes sense. Um, and I think it's helpful for listeners to, to know. I get, I kind of, the, the concept of access is something that I, I think a lot about um, on, on many levels. It's, uh, and it's just interesting. Uh, yeah, just interesting. So, so, I mean, speaking of access though, I, th there's one, program or product or thing that that you have been a part of in the last year or so that has also helped a little bit with with your access which I want to talk about and this is called pioneer um, I think one of the ways that I that I discovered you was from pioneer um, so I'd love for you to explain to listeners who don't know what pioneer is what is pioneer 
and what has the experience been like you been like for you uh, so far participating in Pioneer? Sure, uh, Pioneer, not to be confused with the agriculture company. Pioneer is a uh, online, fully remote accelerator. It's kind of the way they brand themselves. Uh, the way that Brad, my co-founder, and I, who have been actively participating in Pioneer for a few months now, describe it, is it's kind of like startup school meets the Hunger Games. <laughs> it's an online competition where every Sunday you set out what you're going to do in the next week and you review what you did in the last week versus your last update. So basically every time, you know, week two forward, you're able to say, hmm, here's what I said I was going to do last week and here's what I'm going to do next week. And it's a, not only do you set out your goals, but after you set out your goals, other competitors that are so-called plain pioneer every Monday look at two updates anonymously. So you don't see who submitted them um, and judge who did more in the last week. And so when you get these, these two updates in front of you, you're like, okay, you know, these people, they wrote a blog post, they talked to 10 customers and they, you know, redesigned the website. This other one, um, they thought about uh, forming a partnership. They redid their logo um, and they posted a couple of times on Twitter. Um, you know, both made a little bit of progress. I'd say the former uh, did more. And basically Pioneer is week over week that. And so it really, and then if you continue to get voted on, you rise on the leaderboard. Um, and there's leaderboards by geography. So there's like US East, US West, um, Africa, Asia, South America, Europe. And um, then there's a global leaderboard, which is just the aggregation of each of those individual ones. And so if you continue to um, output and progress quickly, that is get voted on by others playing Pioneer, uh, then you're able to rise in the rankings. And you can win, quote unquote, win Pioneer by consistently being a part of the top performers. And then um, the founder of Pioneer, Daniel Gross, who's a former partner at Y Combinator, has basically leveraged his access and his network of individuals to take a look at the top performers and then vote and select who should be deemed a winner. And by winner, you become a pioneer, which comes with the rewards of um, 100K in cloud credits for AWS, 100K in cloud credits for Google Cloud Platform, uh, 2K cash, 5K in Stellar Lumens, um, and then mentorship and, and advice uh, to the Pioneer network. Uh, in exchange for Pioneer gets the right to invest 100K at whatever terms your next external financing are raised at. So, I mean, in theory, let's say you raise at a million dollar valuation just for the sake of easy math and Pioneer exercises their right of 100K, they own 10% of your company up to your next external round. So that's Pioneer. So uh, that's what Pioneer is. You, uh, there's a piece of information that you might have left out in that you have been number one on the global leaderboard for it seems like a billion years in a row. No, just kidding. You've been number one on, on Pioneer for for quite some time, which is which kind of like I don't know. I'm curious. I have a few questions about that. Um, what does something like Pioneer? do to your incentives to like work harder or I guess what does that do in that sense and then two I'm curious how do you feel about Pioneer now that you've you kind of laid put your flag in the ground you've won and you you've been number one for quite a while do you almost feel like like I don't know just how, how do you perceive Pioneer now now after you've won but you still participate every week I'm curious how you think about that too 
Yeah, I mean, Pioneer, so Brad and I, uh, co-founder, are really competitive people. <laughs> and so you, you create a leaderboard and you create a competition and, and we, wanna, we, we want to do well in it. Um, now, we've also found, it's not just an incentive to like, oh yeah, we can do well, but in other participants will speak to this, Pioneer is um, a really good accountability mechanism in the very early days of, of a project. So, I mean, Pioneer is built to support any type of project. Like there's arts projects, there's nonprofits, there's people that want to be companies, there's nights and weekends hustlers, right? The, the idea is that just by having accountability uh, in the early days, it's really hard to measure, especially if you're like building a company, like you don't have a product yet, so you can't be assessed by revenue. You don't have consistent markets or it's really hard to assess like, am I making forward momentum progress? And so just by describing that you're going to get things done and describing what those things are going to be um, is in of itself a really big value add. Um, now for Brad and myself, the way that we think about Pioneer is it's almost like, um, almost like maybe a, a board update that we have to do week over week. Uh, and then it also keeps us kind of you know, accountable to one another because we want to do more than the other, or we want to demonstrate that we can uh, meet, meet our goals. Um, and the other thing is that your Sunday self is very different than your Friday self, right? So like on Sunday, you're like, I'm going to uh, talk to 30 users, uh, publish three blog posts, uh, convert, you know, these many paying users, this many uh, unpaying users to paying users. And then a Friday evening rolls around and you're like, oh man, like, I didn't anticipate that that feature had this other dependency and this other bug. Um, you know, I wanted to, I wanted to uh, go to the hockey game and instead, you know, I'm, I, I gotta be here making this work. It's that nudge, right? It's that nudge that says, you said you would do this. Others are counting on you to do it, even if they're strangers online and, and you gotta get it done. And so, um, and in a pretty simple way, what we got into because we thought it was a, a nice way to, to be competitive and have fun has turned into a really good productivity mechanism. Um, we've gotten uh, interesting feedback as well. Um, frankly, this, I think you found us via, via Pioneer, right? So the validation that the, uh, many other listeners can even hear our story and what we're working on is validation of the value of uh, participating in a Pioneer. So overall, we've had a positive experience and found it to be an accountability mechanism that is really integral to the way that, that we do business. Um, 14 weeks in a row puts a big target on our back, especially when this comes out. So now we're only going to have to work harder, but um, that's the game. All right. So I got, I got a question that is going to uh, pretty much go against your incentives, but I got to ask. I'm currently number 50, I think 56 on the global leaderboard. Nice. What do, what do I need to do to, to replace you as, as number one? What, what I actually mean by that is like, what, can you, what type of execution, this is the last question about Pioneer, but like what does it take to, to be number one specifically like can you do you mind describing like one of your updates from week to week or like what the what the pretty much the prime example of a pioneer is because you've been it for so long like what's an average update for you yeah i'm really happy to happy to speak to that there's there's really no secret sauce and the funny thing is i don't think this is unique to pioneer like we send friends and friends and family updates 
um, you know, will raise at some point. Being able to communicate what you're doing and just improving that you're working on the highest value thing to move your company forward week over week is a universally valuable skill. And so uh, the way that we found uh, at least a good way, I don't know if it's, if it's the best way, jury's out, but a way that we found to do that well is describing everything in terms of, of outcomes, uh, not it, so it's outputs, not inputs. It's uh, being specific and numeric. It's being brief. It's being uh, having a good diversity of the different things that, that you're going to do to move the company forward. So let's give an example of, of our update, um, perhaps from, from even uh, last week, okay? So, you know, if we think about what we need to move our company forward, we, uh, our, one of our enterprise customers wanted a uh, better way to interact with other team members. Uh, and the product right now, if you have a data set, uh, it's not well linked to other team members. So there was a big feature request. And frankly, team sharing is, it's actually a pretty big feature to unpack. There's security rules, there's team management, there's the approval requests, there's the syncing, there's, I mean, it's, it's a meaty feature, feature to, to work on. And so, you know, describing that that's the first thing that, that we're going to work on. The second thing is, you know, we are actively uh, trying to talk to more customers to let, develop more leads. And so we wanted to, um, a good strategy we found, or we think we found is a lot of content for us and content marketing and content driven marketing. And so we uh, wrote a post, but getting the most juice out of that post meant cross promoting it. So there's a blog called Towards Data Science, which has over 300,000 followers. So getting just posted to, to Towards Data Science uh, with our blog post, which we're also going to have, which is also hosted on our blog, was a useful second thing. A third thing was um, being able to, uh, I've been doing a lot of outbound, so reaching out to contacts and holding myself accountable and sending a number. I'm going to follow up with 50 cold leads this week, and that's, that's going to happen. The next thing I'm going to do is I'm going to add to my email list by 30 individuals this given week. And that's one where like, it really is a grind. Getting people to your email list means following up with those that might have at one point been interested in what you're doing, finding new channels to develop, answering questions on Quora, being a presence on Reddit, going to the forums. Like there's just an, it really is a, a, um, a, a hustle output. And so then once we have each of these areas, we're like, okay, we have our product feature. We want to ship the team's feature. We have our sales goal of continuing to follow up with our leads. We have our input funnel of wanting to um, add to our email list. We have our content driven funnel because we think that that's a good way to, to, to continue to market. Um, creating that whole picture, anchoring it in metrics and being specific about are those the highest leverage things to work on is what constitutes not just a good pioneer update, but a good, uh, your company and your time is focused on the right places. Yeah, that's awesome. It's honestly pretty inspiring comparing to my updates, which are like, they're good, but because I, you know, I'm, I'm ranked in some capacity, but you just talking about yours you're really like, there, it's not just this thing that you do and it's passive, but you're really pushing the needle in every update and you're, and you're, you're really treating an update like an accountability partner in some way, uh, which is something I could do better at. So that's, I think anyone listening at this play pioneer could learn a lot from the answer you just gave. I mean, we set serious stretch goals, right? Like we we're <laughs> we're not playing pioneer to game the system. We're playing pioneer because it's going to move our company forward. And if we're not stretching ourselves week over week, like it's been tough. Um, I mean, like we, you can see our commit times, three thirty in the morning sometime, you know, it's, um, and so th th it really is, um, it, it takes that. And, and I mean, it really comes down to each other's work ethic and holding each other accountable too. I mean, Brad is an insanely talented engineer, um, and pushes me to be a better engineer every day. Um, 
And on the flip side, I think the being able to negotiate um, with enterprises or think about machine learning and stuff, it's a really good dynamic. And so I think we're also fortunate to have uh, each other push, push one another. Um, but yeah, it, it is really push yourselves when you, when you set your updates. It's even if you don't push yourselves across all verticals of, you know, sales, product marketing in one vertical, really push yourself on that one spot. Um, and recognize that it's not to win pioneer pioneer is almost like a symptom of a broader cause and that cause is building a good company. All right. Well, let me tell you, you're gonna, you're gonna regret saying all that. Cause I'm gonna take all of that advice, harness it and take that number one spot. <laughs> <laughs> I, yeah, I, uh, I know. I mean, like I said, target on our backs, but um, no, that's good stuff, man. If I'm gonna if I'm gonna practice what I preach, we're gonna have to we're gonna have to up it. Yeah, it's actually a funny story about Pioneer. So we were like we played in the first uh, like four or five tournaments when it first came out, and there was a point when we were so I can't believe this happened. We were number six um, on the global leaderboard, and that same day, Forbes <laughs> Forbes came out with an article about Pioneer. And now if you Google the Forbes article on Pioneer, Hubloft will forever be etched as number six in that article, which is pretty cool. It's that like, is awesome. It's, it's a pretty, because, I mean, a lot has happened since then. Like, I've moved on from Hubloft, and, you know, lots happened. But, like, I will, we, that, that is etched in history that I can say That's at great. some point, number six. <laughs> you know what? That's what this podcast is for us. We're going to fall someday probably, right? Like, I mean, if we're, if we're really pushing ourselves, it, it, it'll happen. Um, uh, I don't want it to, and I'm going to, you know, work my best to, for that not to be the case, but at least we'll have this digital, <laughs> digital log of a conversation of when, um, when we were there. Yeah, for sure. For sure. So a couple more questions. We don't have much more time. I have a hard stop in uh, four minutes. So I guess two questions. First question is I'm kind of interested. How do you think about raising money? Do you, do you, because you've been number one on Pioneer for 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 so long, and you have you know you you have the deal, I guess. Do you feel like you could just raise from anyone? Like, do you feel like you have an edge? Sorry, let me rephrase. That sounds very like it makes it sound like very cocky. I don't mean it like that. Do you feel Do you feel confident going into fundraising, or is it still something that you don't really feel you understand super well? Because Pioneer is different from raising money. Pioneer is def definitely different from raising money. Um, the so the story with raising is. Um, there's two parts. One is we, Brad and I both are fortunate to be second time founders. And so we don't have a ton of pressure at present to, to raise external capital. So super honestly, it's not a huge focus. We have some relationships and we'll, we'll lean into those, but right now it's really about getting the product right, talking to customers, <laughs> repeat. Um, now, how does Pioneer help with, with raising? I mean, obviously this is a, a hypothetical discussion as we haven't, um, raised external capital. Uh, but frankly, one thing that we envision it helping with is we're describing how to communicate effectively what you're working on and proving it's high value. I think that will be a skill that's transferable. A second thing is that, you know, the product that we are building today, it's even changed over the last, um, since we've been playing Pioneer, we shipped Board Boss. Um, so you can check out boardboss.com. It's a boggle solver, you know, the four by four word game. And that was the first thing that we started building as a part of, of Pioneer and as a part of our company before we realized that the developer tools is where, you know, we can have a bigger impact and have a higher leverage on ushering in the camera and explosion of computer vision applications. Um, and in, in doing so, the recognition that 
Pioneer is proof that you're shipping quickly. And investors care a lot about, I mean, everyone does, but especially investors care to prove that um, you can, even if you're not on the right path, you are quickly iterating to get there. And so I think that's another way that, that it'll be helpful. Um, and then the last thing is that, you know, the mentorship network of being able to reach out to other pioneers. And um, I think Dan Gross envisions Pioneer being like a, a digital Harvard replacement sort of, or like a Stanford credential replacement. And so ideally, you know, having pioneers be um, thought of as, as a coveted brand would be, you know, rising tide will raise all boats in that regard. Um, but frankly, fundraising is not an immediate priority for us. We're fortunate that that's the case and we're just really heads down on, on product. Got it. That's a great answer. It's, it's good when you don't need the money, but um, yeah, it puts you in a different position, right? Like a kind of a, a more powerful position. Last question for you before we wrap it up. In, uh, in 30 seconds, how can the Forward Thinking Founders community help you? What is the biggest thing we can do to contribute to your success? Yeah, appreciate that. I mean, one is if you are a data scientist interested in getting started with computer vision or already doing computer vision work at a large company, give us feedback. Roboflow.ai, free to sign up, free for up to a gigabyte of data sets. Uh, and uh, send, us, send us emails, help at Roboflow.ai. If, it's, if it's, you have a bad experience, if you want a feature, uh, check us out. Second is if you're not a computer vision engineer, think of who you know that's a computer engineer and send them Roboflow. And the third is um, if you are uh, generally interested in or um, able to help out with developer tools or uh, have put some thought into that, uh, uh, get in touch. We, we certainly benefit from pricing strategies and, and discussions and, and product feedback. So my ask is check out roboflow.ai if it's applicable for you. And if it's not, send it to someone whom it is applicable for. All right. Thank you. Uh, thank you for coming on. Great ask. And uh, just thanks for coming on, man. I think you're a really smart dude. I think you have a very bright future. And appreciate the, the future battle for number one. <laughs> thanks. Thanks so much, man. Appreciate it.